your texts, please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. I want to thank John for filling in last week, and uh, or two weeks ago, and uh, he'll be following me up here in a bit. Um, so James chapter 2 is where we're going to be, uh, starting around about verse 14. Uh, the title of our, of our sermon this morning is How to Have a Flourishing Faith. How to have a flourishing faith. And so we will be in chapter 2, round about verse 14. And we'll be looking at a, a pretty sizable chunk here in, in the book of James, verses 14 uh, through 26. I can't help but notice, especially when the service uh, began, that this side of the auditorium was almost, if not more, full than that side. I just got to break it to you. There's no candy today, so, you know, sorry, no benefit for sitting on that side. Uh, last week, if you missed it, we talked about how to forestall favoritism, and uh, this side got treated with some favoritism and got some candy. Uh, no candy today, sorry. Uh, but turn with me to the book of James, and we will indeed have something sweet uh, from the Word of God. Uh, I want to begin with a story uh, to introduce uh, our topic this morning, how to have... A flourishing faith. Um, I want to tell the story of four friends, uh, one of those friends being myself. Uh, when I grew up uh, in junior high and high school, um, I kind of had, a, like most of us do, a group of friends, tight-knit buddies, if you will, and there were four of us. And uh, we went to a small school, as I think I mentioned last week. Uh, we went to a small school, much like System Park, but we went to church um, at a, in the city. And so uh, we didn't go to, to church with the uh, people that we went to school with. And so us four guys, we were, I think, you know, two or three years apart. We were kind of scattered, but we hung together. And we were, uh, went to the same church. And we were um, one of the few people in my high school growing up that would claim to be Christian. Uh, and so we kind of hung together. You know, we found that uh, we went to church together and we claimed Christ together and we uh, tried to encourage one another in the Christian life together. And so I very much loved um, these four buddies. It was myself, uh, a good friend of mine, probably my best friend by the name of Billy Cash. Uh, another uh, of the guys was, uh, was Luke. His name was Luke. And the fourth guy, uh, his name was Michael. And uh, us four were good buddies. And uh, the, the story of these four um, four friends and where we ended up, I, I, I find interesting, maybe because I'm in the story, um, but uh, um, out of us four, um, I don't know who would have guessed it, especially if you knew us in junior high, but out of us four, three of us actually are in some kind of uh, full-time paid ministry, for lack of a better word. Three of us, three out of four. Um, I certainly didn't think in junior high and high school that I would be one of those, um, nor did I think that um, uh, Luke, the other one who's actually involved in, in ministry, would be as well. Um, Billy, we all knew, would do that. He was a stud, a spiritual stud. He was the leader of our group, and uh, you know, we knew that he would be in ministry in, in some way, shape, or form. But the rest of us... You know, we were just kind of average teenagers who claimed Christ and tried to uh, live out our faith. Uh, but the story, I think, is, is interesting because in retrospect, as I look back on it, um, yes, I'm surprised that, that I, my life went that direction. But I'm very much surprised at the direction of the life of a couple of my friends, Luke, uh, the one who is in ministry at this point, and Michael. Um, growing up in junior high, Michael uh, was the one who, as far as I can remember, um, introduced me to the gospel. I remember sitting in like junior high math class and Michael speaking to me about Jesus. And I remember him telling me that I can't be good enough for God on my own. I remember him sitting, and we should have probably been doing math, but he was drawing images of the cross and trying to help me to understand um, what I'm sure he had been taught at the church that I eventually ended up going to. And I remember him uh, articulating the gospel. He was very involved in church. His family was very involved. He did RAs, GAs, if you know what that is. And uh, he did, yeah, that's okay. It's like, you know, girls and boys club, that kind of thing. Yeah, Emily knows. Uh, he did Bible verse. I mean, he was just really involved in church. And, and for, for all accounts, as far as I can tell growing up with him uh, his faith uh, seemed to be fairly solid and you know he spoke that which is right um, on the other hand we had a friend by the name of Luke and Luke let's just say was a little more rough around the edges um, Luke would do things um, that I probably uh, wouldn't do uh, for whatever reason and, and Luke was a little more wild he was kind of the wild child in our group he didn't have the best reputation um, and to be honest throughout uh, my junior high and high school years I became a believer when I was 15 so I think it was maybe my freshman year uh, 
freshman year in high school. And I remember uh, after that kind of being involved with Luke. And, and, and I knew that God was doing a work in my life. I could tell that he was changing my heart and that my desires were different. Um, and as I interacted with Luke, who I love very dearly, I just didn't really see much of that. I mean, he spoke rightly. He could articulate you know, who Jesus was. And I think if someone were to, someone were to ask him about the gospel, um, I, think he could, I think he could articulate that. But he just didn't, you know, he just didn't show it, for lack of a better word. Well, fast forward about, um, I, I kind of lost, lost base, touch with Luke after high school. Fast forward about 10 years, uh, roughly or so. I had been in touch with Billy. He and I are good friends. I had not been in touch with Michael, probably for the same amount of time, 10 years or so. Um, and I uh, caught up with Michael via Facebook, um, which I'm a new person on Facebook, so learning how to use that tool. I know, I'm like a way out of date. Um, and so I, t- I got in touch with Michael and come to find out through conversations and just kind of hearing about his family that he, uh, for lack of a better word, had kind of lost his faith. Um, he uh, didn't, I don't believe at this point, uh, claimed Christ. I think he uh, you know, lived a lifestyle that I would say was inconsistent with his profession. And, and I have to say that I was deeply, I was deeply hurt. And uh, shocked by that because this is the guy who I think he's the first guy I ever remember sharing the gospel with me. And now he's living a life that, uh, you know, denies Jesus and and doesn't even profess that anymore. And and so I was deeply hurt to find that out um, from what I can tell. And so that's the sad side of the story. But the good side of the story is I was able to, I got a random call uh, maybe two or three years ago. Just out of the blue, you know, you get a phone call and you look at it and it's like a weird zip code and you're like, what zip code is this? You know, and usually, at least if it's me, I don't answer it. I don't know the zip code. I'm not going to answer it. Um, But I just felt like I'm going to answer it. And so I answered this phone call and out of the blue, I had talked to Luke 10 years and it's Luke. Luke Nunley, my good friend from high school. And, uh, and we talked, and I was shocked to hear from him. And, and I said, you know, we just kind of got to talking. And he's like, hey, man, I touched base with your parents, and they said you're in seminary, and you're going to be a pastor, and this and that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, guess what? And I said, what? He said, I'm a pastor now. And I, said, <laughs> and I probably shouldn't have, but I was like, awkward silence. You know? <laughs> I wanted to say, what? <laughs> you're what? <laughs> um, and so we got to talking. Uh, and I don't know how long the conversation lasted, but... The man, the pastor, he's, a, he's an itinerant evangelist. He does evangelistic speaking. Uh, he married a wife who's, who's a believer. And, and, and I hear from this short 30-minute conversation that what I thought was a fruitless faith turns out to be a flourishing faith. And he loves Jesus. He serves Jesus. He lives his life, I think, from what I could tell, trying to be obedient to Jesus. And so as I think back about... Um, the story of four friends, three of us of whom are in ministry. I think about Luke and I think about Michael. And I think, you know, how, what's going on here? How do I explain this? And so I think um, many of you, I think, have stories of people, and maybe it's your story. But many of you, I think, have stories like mine. I think many of you can relate to the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Maybe you have a, a, a son or a daughter who made a profession of faith when they were young. They walked an aisle, uh, they said a prayer, they had a conversation with you when they were younger. And as, as they have grown up, as they've gone to college, as they've gotten married, um, things seem to be different. Um, the speech that you hear coming from their lips is um, Jesus is not the only way. I mean, can we really be that narrow-minded? Uh, I mean, surely there are other ways. Jesus, is he really who he says he was? Is he really the son of God? And you see your son or your daughter living a lifestyle that is contrary to the things that Jesus loves. They love the things that Jesus hates. Uh, maybe it's the contrary. Maybe there's a friend just like me. Uh, my story, who grew up, and as you knew them in high school or maybe in college or as a young adult, they were the wild child. They lived in such a way that went against their profession of faith. They said that they were Christians uh, when you knew them, and but you just couldn't see anything. But now you've come to know and you've seen them change and you've seen, uh, you've seen their love begin to to grow for the Lord and you've seen fruit, for lack of a better word. And, and now they love 
church. They love the things of the Lord. They love the gospel and they're living their life in such a way that honors Jesus. I think all of us can relate to these kinds of stories, both maybe with our story or stories of people that we know, stories of people that we love. And so the question that I think these stories brings up and the question that James is going to bring up is simply this. Is there a relationship between genuine faith, saving faith and a resultant lifestyle change? The, the, the words that James uses, is there a relationship between genuine faith and works? Can a person place their faith in Jesus genuinely, receive the gospel <clears throat> And then live exactly the way that they did. Go on and not have any lifestyle change. And the question that James brings up is that. What's the relationship? And James, in our text this morning, starting in verse 14, is emphatically going to say, yes. He's going to answer that question positively. He's going to say there is indeed a relationship between genuine faith and works. There is a relationship between possessing faith and then producing fruit or foliage, if you will. A lifestyle change. Yes, there is a relationship between the two. I'd like to summarize this for you. Uh, this sermon will be a little different than the sermons we've done the past few weeks. Uh, the past few weeks have been a little more uh, applicationally driven, and I've given you tools for your tool bag. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to deal with a difficult text, and so I want us, I want us to, to walk through the text, and I want to give you the format, where James is going, hopefully make what James is saying as clear as I can by the help of the Spirit. And then we're going to talk application. We're going to talk about what this means for our life. But I think that the point of our message, the point that James is getting at, is summarized well by the great theologian John Calvin. And so if you don't get anything else, if you happen to tune me out from here on out, and I ask that you don't, but if you do, if you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with this. This is the point. This is what James is saying to us. John Calvin's words. Faith alone saves. But the faith that saves is never alone. Let me repeat that. Maybe you can write it down. Faith alone saves. We are saved by faith through grace alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. That's the point of James chapter 2. And so what we see is four movements. They're going to be kind of four sections, if you will. We're going to walk through it, and then we're, then we're going to make this hit home a little bit. The first section, let's jump into it, is verses 14 through 17. And I've entitled it Questions. And so if, you, if you're taking notes on your notebook, or if you'd like to write in your Bible, <clears throat> around verses 14, starting in verses 14 through 17, write the word Questions. Uh, bullet point number one, if you will, questions. Because in verses 14 through 17, James begins his argument by asking some rhetorical questions. In fact, he's going to ask us three questions, and all of these questions are meant to have a negative response. That is, James raises the question, and the intended response is no. No. And so James then is going to raise three questions, and then he's going to summarize his point in verse 17. Okay, let's get into the text. Question number one, verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? What good is it if someone makes a profession of faith, but it's not accompanied by works? And what is the answer that James wants us to say? What good is it? No good. <laughs> Nothing. No good. It's useless, is the answer that James elicits from us. I want to point out here something that's important. Notice the kind of faith that we're talking about. James is going to use this word over and over through the text, faith. But notice the kind of faith that he's talking about. Notice, if someone, what's the word? Says. If someone says he has faith. And so the kind of faith that we're talking about and the kind of faith that James will be demonstrating, I would call it this. There is a profession of faith. There's a profession of faith, but there's not a possession of faith. Someone professes, someone believes something right, but they don't possess that faith. 
as demonstrated by their deeds. So question number one, what good is it? No good. Question number two, can that faith, that kind of faith, the faith that is merely a profession, but not a heart change, can that faith save him? And the answer that James wants us to say is what? No. No. Can that kind of faith save him? No. No, it cannot because it was not real in the first place. Question number three, verse 15. He gives us an illustration. He fleshes this out for us. He says in verse 14, that faith is no good. It's a mere profession. Question number two, he says it's not salvific. It doesn't save us. It wasn't real. Question number three, verse 15. If a brother or a sister, notice, who is he talking about here? He's talking about within the body of Christ. He's talking about a fellow believer in Jesus. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, here's the question, what good is that? And the intended response is, No good, right? It's no good. This, interestingly enough, um, James, in his illustration, points out, he wants us to see that he's going to call it a dead faith, a mere profession of faith. If a person believes rightly, but it has not affected their heart and thus affected their life, he says it shows itself and and how that person treats a person in the church. You see that? That sounds eerily familiar. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, and this is how the world will know that you are mine. It goes very much with what Jesus is saying. And so James James says that you, you will know this kind of person by the way that they demonstrate, or the lack thereof, of their demonstration of love. He says, go in peace. The person says to this person who's shabbily clothed maybe they don't even have many clothes they're hungry in the illustration and 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 the person's answer is go in peace i hope you get find something to eat i hope you find something to warm you but you don't do anything this is a a common jewish farewell if you remember jesus in the gospel says this a few times go in peace it's it's a farewell if you will it's kind of like saying Goodbye, you know, is, is, is how we would say it. And this person gives them theology. He gives them a, a, a Jewish blessing, but he, di- he doesn't demonstrate his faith by his actions. He doesn't love the church. He simply says, oh, I hope you get warm. <laughs> Farewell. Um, and so then in verse 17, James kind of brings it home. He's asked three questions, all of which demand a negative response. And now he summarizes his point. This is what he's getting at in verse 17. He summarizes his point. <clears throat> verse 17, so also, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So also, faith by itself, if a person just professes faith, they believe in their mind that which is right, but it is not demonstrated in their life. It's not genuine. It's not real. If there's no works, then James calls it dead. It's not living. It's dead. And so, by way of illustration, I talked a little bit about myself, and I'll continue to do so. As I read what James is talking about, I can relate to this, because I have sat in a church probably like many of you, all of my life, ever since I was, I'm sure, a wee little tyke, I went to church. And I remember going to uh, uh, church, and then we switched churches when I was about 10 or 11, and I have always been in church. And so the churches that I went to, I think, taught me, for the most part, rightly. I can probably recite to you the Apostles' Creed. I can probably recite to you some of the Nicene Creed, if I get lucky and remember it. Um, I can uh, recite to you some of the, uh, well, all of the Lord's Prayer. Um, I had, I had knowledge growing up, and then even when we moved churches and went to a more gospel-centered church that really preached genuine faith uh, and repentance and personal faith in Jesus Christ through faith alone, um, I remember I heard and I understood the gospel for, this, for the first time uh, when we started going to that church. But probably for about 
Two or three years. Two or three years, I sat in a pew, like you guys do, and like I do every Sunday, and I listened to preaching, and I listened to the gospel, and if you were to ask me what it was, I could tell you. I could tell you what the gospel was. I could tell you what faith was. I could even tell you how to do it. But for those two years, or three years, I was this person. I said, if you were to ask me, that I had faith. I would say it. I had it in my mind. I understood it. It was a mental ascent. But I was not a believer. I was not a Christian. I did not love the things of God. I did not love Jesus. I loved sin. And I loved myself. And I could tell you all the religious jargon. I could say, go in peace. I could tell you that which is right. But it wasn't real. I sat for three years until the Lord got to my heart. And I remember one night laying in my bed. I knew exactly what to do because I had heard it every Sunday for about five years. I knew what to do. And I surrendered my heart. And as we heard on the song that, we, uh, that was played earlier, uh, the Spirit's whisper divine uh, whispered into my heart. And I was converted. I placed my faith in Jesus. And it was real. And my heart was changed because the very next day, I believe, was Sunday. And I wanted to go. <laughs> I hated church. And I wanted to go. And it was a shock to me. I'll tell you what. I I got up that morning and I'm like, wow, church sounds like a good idea. What? (laughs) My heart was changed. And so this is what James is talking about. Intellectual ascent. There's profession, but it has not demonstrated itself in the heart. It has not demonstrated itself in the life. It's mere profession. And so James in, in 14 through 17 asks us a series of questions. Then moving into verse 18 and 19, he raises an objection. He plays the part, if you will, of an objector. He, he plays in his mind a debate. And so he says, someone may say, you know, someone is not going to like what I just said. Someone's going to argue with me. And so he plays in his mind's eye in verses 18 and 19 a debate. There's, an, there's a hypothetical objection. That he brings up, and then he's going to answer that objection. And so in verse 18, we read the objection. Notice what he says. But someone will say, and so here's the objection. Someone is saying, well, James, no, this is not right. But someone will say, and this is what they say. You have faith, James, you have faith, and I have works. And so I think what this objector is saying is that a person really can demonstrate that their faith is real Apart from what they do. Do you get that? This person is saying that faith and a demonstration of works, a changed lifestyle, can be separate. You don't really have to have one with the other. He's saying a person can really demonstrate their faith completely aside from what they say and what they think and how they act. And so he's refuting what James is saying. And so James is going to answer. And this is what James says. Continuing on. James says this. James says the only way that someone, that me, that you, the only way that someone can see that your faith is real, the only way that someone can see that your faith is genuine is through your actions. Notice what he says. James picks up the dialogue and he says this. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is what James is saying. Let me, let me read a comment from Ron Blue. I think he makes it crystal clear, the argument that James is saying. <clears throat> Ron Blue says this, James challenged the someone to show his faith without deeds. The point being that it cannot be done. James, however, says that the faith, that faith can be demonstrated only by what one does. And I think that's exactly what James is saying. By way of illustration, let's just say um, that I walk in one Sunday morning and I say, Colleen, step aside. I have now unveiled my talents as a grand pianist. I am a classical pianist. I am world class I have been in the closet, so to speak, as a classical pianist, but I want to wow you this morning uh, by showing you my skills and claiming that I'm a world-class pianist. And so, and, she, and Colleen will say in this fictitious, this didn't really happen, <laughs> in a fictitious way, she says, oh, I can't believe that. Well, why don't you, why don't you take, here, I'll be happy to let you have the piano. Show me, show me what you got. And I say, no, <laughs> no, I just am. 
I'm a, I am a world-class pianist. And she says, well, why don't you show me what you can do so we can get this ball rolling? And I said, no, no, I'm just saying that I am, and it's true. <laughs> and so what she's going to say is, what? Show me, <laughs> is what she's going to say. Show me. And so she might say to this, she might say something like this, you show me your world-class pianist apart from playing Beethoven, i.e. you can't do it, and I will show you that I'm a world-class pianist because I'm going to play Beethoven for you. You see what I'm saying? That's what James is saying. And she'll get on the keys and she'll rattle off Beethoven. I don't know if you can play Beethoven. I'm sure you can. Um, And she will show that her words are true. And this is what James is saying. He's saying the only way that you and I can tell that someone's faith is real is by what they do. He then goes on to speak in verse 19, and he says that genuine faith is not mere, it's not merely intellectual. It's not just a matter of believing something in your head. It's not just having right doctrine and being able to articulate the Trinity and the Gospel. It's not just having right doctrine. Verse 19, he really hits it home here. Verse 19, James speaks again to his objector. You believe that God is one. This is the great Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? This is like the John 3.16 for the Jews. You know, everyone knew this. It was the core of their faith. And so James says, you believe right doctrine. You believe God is one. You do well. Good for you. That's good. (laughs) That's a good thing. You need to believe rightly. And then what he says is shocking. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And what James is saying is that, you know what? You can have all the right theology in the world. You can go into my office, get the volumes of theology that I have, and read through every single bit of it and know it by heart. And you can articulate the deepest, most hard, most difficult uh, doctrinal uh, theological issues. You can have it down pat and be no better and no more saved than a demon. That's what James is saying. Think about it as I run into that. Think about it. What, do you, what does Satan do? He is the deceiver. He speaks lies. And that's what his minions do. The demons do that. They speak lies to us. By default, if that's their job, what do they have to know? Truth. They have to know right. They have to know rightly about God, do they not? This is somewhat humbling. Demons have a better understanding and grasp and probably more correct theology than I do. <laughs> they know that. Think about when Jesus encountered the demon, and, the, and I believe it's in Mark, and the demon said something to the effect of, who, I know who you are, Jesus. Have you come to, uh, you are the Holy One of God. Have you come to, to torture me before it's time? The demon knew who Jesus was. The demons know correct theology. But here's a question for you. Will you see the demons in heaven? Will they be seeing the praises of God forever and ever with the redeemed? Well, no, they won't be. And how do you know that? How do you know? Well, what do they do? They deceive, they rebel, and they hate God. And what James is saying is that just as demons, their actions demonstrate that they are not saved, that they don't know, that they don't honor God. They think rightly about him. They know who he is. But their wills have not been bent to honor him. And so James then, in verses 18 and 19, he's given us some questions. He's given us his response. In verse 17, he has gone through a series of objections. And he says, the only way that we can see someone's genuine faith is through their actions. And it's not just intellectual sense. Moving on in verses 20 through 25, what James now does is he gives us some examples. He's talked theology, if you will. He's made his point, and now he gives us some illustrations. And he says, let me show you. And these, remember, he's talking to Jewish believers. And so he takes them to the Old Testament. And he says, it's always been this way. This is always true. It's true of Abraham, and it's true of Rahab. And he gives us two examples of people who had a saving faith. In God, and it was demonstrated by what they did. Abraham and Rahab, very different people, are they not? Abraham was the what? Father Abraham, Rahab, many sons. He was the, he's the patriarch. I'm not going to sing anymore. Uh, he was the patriarch. He was the father of both the Jewish nation and the believers now. 
He's a big, he's a big deal. He's a male. He's a Jew. Rahab. He is, she is a Gentile. She um, was not a Jew, and yet, and she's female. But, nonetheless, James says, this is always true. And so in verses 20 through 24, he begins with Abraham. And I'd like to read this uh, together, and then I'll try my best to summarize the argument that he's making. He first says, we see this in the life of Abraham. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so he is talking to his objector and he says, let me show you. Let me give you some more support. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, you see, notice that, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And so he summarizes a little bit his Abraham section, and he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, many of you uh, immediately are thinking, wait a minute. You know what Paul says about justification. You know Romans chapters uh, 1 through 6, and particularly 3 and 4, in good bits of the book of Galatians. And you're thinking, Paul says that we're justified before God by faith, by faith alone, by grace alone. But James just said that we're justified by faith and works. What? That's what you're thinking. Or maybe some of you are thinking. At least John's thinking it. Because um, we talked about it. We talked about it. So I know he's thinking it, so I'm going to answer that objection. Uh, first of all, before I explain this example, we need, we need to understand something. Um, at some point in your life, um, you might get a knock on your door, and there might be a guy or two who, who's dressed in a suit and a black tie and riding on a bicycle. And they may want to talk to you. You know who I'm talking about. They may want to talk to you, and if you happen to be nice that day and let them in and really engage in conversation with them, one of the things that they will say is, well, a person gets into heaven because uh, it's faith plus works. It's what you believe and what you do. And you're going to say, no, no, no. Oh, no. The Bible and Paul says that a person is justified simply by faith alone. And they're going to take you to this passage, and they're going to say, no, you're saved by faith plus works, and you're going to... Okay, bye. (laughs) What are you going to say? Well, this is what you're going to say. This is what you're going to say. Uh, In Paul and in James, uh, they use these words differently. That's how language works. Words can mean different things in different contexts. And so here, it's very important that we understand that the root of the word justify or justification essentially means to declare something right or to declare something righteous. And so for Paul, if you remember, Paul essentially says that justification means this, that God is declaring a sinner That's important. When Paul talks about justification, it's a person who is not saved, a person who does not believe in Jesus yet. And when they do, it's declaring a sinner righteous before God. It's declaring a sinner righteous before God. They are justified. They are declared to be holy and right before God. That's what Paul means when he uses this word. But James, in a very different context, means something differently. When James uses the word justify or justification, Notice the differences. James is declaring a believer, a person who has faith in Jesus, a a person who has been justified by faith apart from works. James then is declaring a believer's behavior right or righteous, not before God, but before other people. You see this throughout James. James says, you see, let me show you. It's it's between people. And so when James here talks about justif- justification by faith plus works, what he's saying is simply what he's been saying all along. Is that a, how do you and I know that when a person has the right answers, that it's true and that it's real and that it's demonstrated in their life? Well, they are justified before people. They are declared that their actions and their words are true. By what they do. So Abraham. He uses the illustration of Abraham. Okay. You remember, if you will, the story of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And God promised uh, Abraham a whole bunch of stuff. That a nation would come from him. And that they would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And that Abraham would have a son. Even though he and his wife were very old. This was God's promise to him. And in, Gen- and in Genesis 15, which James quotes... James quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, 
And it was counted to him as righteousness. And so at that point, God says, you're going to have a boy, even though you're really old. (laughs) And that boy is going to have other sons and daughters. And through that son, the whole world is going to be blessed. I'm going to bless your socks off. And Abraham at that point had faith. And he believed that what God said was true. You could say that he was saved at that point. He was declared righteous at that point. And so then the question that James asks is, how do we know that that James really believed that? I mean, how do we really know that he believed that he would have a son and that through that son, he would have more sons and the world would be blessed? How do we know? Well, what James says is that we know by what he did because in Genesis 22... There was an event. And God asked Abraham to do what? Take the knife and do what? Right? To kill his own son. God asked Abraham to take a knife and to sacrifice his own son, whom the son was was supposed to have more sons, right? How does that work, God? I thought you promised that this would be the son and that he would bear more children, but now you want me to kill him? And in that moment... Abraham had to choose whether he believed or demonstrate whether he believed God's promise or not. And what did Abraham do? He strung him up, didn't he? And he was like, this close, wasn't he? And God said, wait. Okay, now you have demonstrated that you believe me. You see that? And so his works demonstrated that his faith was real. And that's how it is with all of us. Then he moves on to another example. Rahab, verse 25. Rahab. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Any of you remember the story of Rahab? Rahab lived in what city? Jericho. And Jericho was about to go what? A tumbling down, right, at the hands of Joshua. And so he sends spies, and these two spies uh, uh, go and they uh, meet uh, Rahab. And essentially they say, hey, God's going to take this place down. Our God is the true God. Your God is not. Everyone's going to die. And uh, what are you going to do about it? (laughs) And essentially she says, I've heard about your God. I believe you. He is the one true God. You could say she was converted already. And so she demonstrated the reality of that. What did she do? Did she say, uh, police, police, these two guys? No, she didn't do that, did she? No, because she believed God and she hid them. She hid them and she sent them out another way, thus demonstrating that their message that she believed in was true. Because if she didn't believe that, and if they would have come to her and said, hey, the city's going to fall and you're going to die. And she says, uh, yeah, that sounds good. I, yeah, I believe you. You're right. Your God is the true God. Uh, Please come get them. Come get them and take them away. Did she really believe that? No. But that's not what happened. And so he gives us two illustrations of this principle. And he wraps up in verse 26. The last verse of the section, verse 26. Then we'll get into some some illustrative and applicational thoughts. Uh, Verse 26, James concludes with a real simple illustration, a simple illustration from nature, and he says this, verse 26. For as the body, apart from the spirit, or breath, for as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. And he uses a really illust- a simple illustration to kind of nail uh, the, the, the nail in the coffin, which is <laughs> a, a good illustration, <laughs> where to put it. Um, he hammers it home, if you will, that faith and works cannot be separated. And what he says is uh, when someone passes away, when someone dies, they have a body. And we say that they are dead because their non-material aspect, their spirit, their soul, if you will, their breath is gone. And so we don't look at anyone in a, co- in a coffin and say that person is alive. We don't say they're alive. We say that they're dead because they have a body, they have an externals, you know, they could be alive, but they're not because the spirit is not there. There's nothing animating their body. And James says that a person who says they have faith, who makes a profession of faith, who thinks rightly, but has not allowed it to come to their heart and be fleshed out in their life, is like that corpse. 
He says they have the externals, they believe rightly, they can recite the creeds to you and even maybe speak of Jesus rightly to you, but they're dead. That kind of faith is dead because there is no works, they, there is no breath, there is no spirit. It's, it's dead. And so James hammers home his point in verse 26. And so by way of illustration, and then we're going to talk about application and we'll be done. You know, understanding, I think, this text is fairly simple. Applying this text, it gets hairy, <laughs> and it gets complicated. Uh, by way of illustration, I- I'm borrowing this illustration from uh, Dr. John Piper, wonderful pastor, teacher up in Minneapolis. He uses this illustration to talk about the relationship between saving faith and then a person's life, with, with faith and works. And uh, imagine with me, if you will, um, a plant. A plant that produces some kind of fruit, say an apple tree, if you will. And if you could look at an apple tree and you could look underneath the ground, what would you see? Roots. You would see roots, right? You would see all sorts of roots that undergird and that give life to that plant. And then stemming up from the roots, as you go up, you see the bark and you see the trees. And then you see, if it's an alive tree, you see what? You see apples, don't you? And so this is, I think, the way that we can look and understand the relationship between faith and works. The roots of our faith, the way that we, a seed takes root and it begins to grow, the roots of our salvation is faith alone by grace alone. And so the roots, when a, when a person comes to faith, they have roots that, that begin to grow and they grow deeper and deeper over time. But the roots of our faith is the gospel. It's by faith alone. We come to know God simply not because of what we do, not because of who we are, simply by God's grace. He's offered us grace and love in the person of Jesus. And we personally accept that. We believe it not just with our hearts, but with our wills. And we surrender to Jesus and he saves us. We become different people. We are forgiven of our sins and changed. That is the, that's the roots. It's by faith alone. We can't do anything to merit it. We can't do anything to earn it. And so that's the roots, right? Those are, that's what is the, is the beginning of our faith. But then what happens when a plant uh, begins to grow in their roots? What happens? Well, it grows, and it grows a bark, and it, goes, and it grows fruit. And that's how you know that the roots are healthy. That's how you know the roots are real, is the fruit that is then grown from that. And so the roots, or the foliage, if you will, is the result of our faith. It's the result of it. And that, James links to our lifestyle, to a change in lifestyle. He calls it works. Does that make sense? Is that, is that a clear picture? And so when you look at the tree, the roots, it's by faith alone. It's, it's grace. But then inevitably what becomes of that is the good works that James talks about. And so with that image in mind, the roots and the fruits image in mind, let's bring this home, let's apply this to our lives. Uh, Three applications that I want us to walk away with. And the first application is this. We need to get the gospel root right. We need to get the gospel root right. And what I mean by that is simply what I have said before. When we present the gospel, let's not... Let's not get the roots and the fruits mixed up. And so a couple things, a couple errors that we can make here. The first error is that we demand the fruit before the root. I'll say it again. We demand the fruit before the root. And what I mean by that is we anticipate and expect people to change their lives, to get right, to do better before they come to Jesus. And that's wrong. (laughs) That is not the gospel of grace. And so we can do this. We can demand that there be fruit before the root of the gospel takes place. Uh, A lot of ways. We expect that the addict, they need to make some progress before they come to faith. For the person who worries, they really need to get a handle on that before they come to faith in Jesus. The teenager, you just need to stop sleeping around. And then you come to faith in Jesus. The person who's tattooed or pierced. Uh, we, man, you need to dress normal. You need to clean up. And then you come to faith in Jesus. Man, the addict, the drunk, you really need to get sober. And then you place your faith in Jesus. Those are all false gospels. And so we make error number one. We demand the fruit before the root. I don't think many of us here do that. I don't think we 
I hope we don't, have that struggle in our church. I hope when we articulate the gospel, we can articulate that clearly, that you come to Jesus as you are, and you receive forgiveness and a changed life by grace, and then he changes you. The second error that we can make is this. We demand the root with no expectation of the fruit. Let me repeat that. We demand the root, that is, you have to understand and believe the gospel, right, with no expectation of fruit to follow. And that, I think, is a more common error. What that means is, and I grew up in a uh, denomination that was very gospel-centered and gospel-oriented, and we had uh, you know, we, all the calls every Sunday, and the gospel was presented every Sunday, as it should be, um, but it was very much focused on the event. And so, if a person walked the aisle and talked to the pastor and said a prayer, that meant inevitably that they were saved. Inevitably. Whether they meant it or not. If you went to a conference and you had some kind of experience, that means inevitably that you were a Christian. And so what we can do here is demand the root with no expectations of the fruit. And so when we share the gospel, this is how we do it. We say you are coming to Jesus and you receive forgiveness of sins and you will be cleansed and you will be forgiven. And you don't have to do a thing except accept that. But I want you to know. That if that is real, that if the root of the gospel takes fruit, uh, takes root in your life, then you will begin to change. God will begin to change you. It may be slow. It may be hard for people to see. But there will be change. God will make you a new creation. And so this is a second error that we have to avoid. Demanding the root of the gospel with no expectation of the fruit. So first of all, as we relate to people who are unbelievers, we need to get the gospel root right. Secondly, as we think about our own lives, and this is where it gets a little personal, as we think about our own life, I would say this. If there's no fruit, we need to examine our root. If we don't see the fruit on the tree, then we need to look at the health of the root and say, is it real? Is there a genuine faith? And, and this is where it gets complicated. It's hard. And we can, I could go through a list of good works that the Bible says that we as believers should have. And it would be long and extensive and run the gamut from all sorts of areas. And so those are anticipated and expected. But I want to look at some of the things that I think are harder to see as we look at the fruit in our life. Because when a person becomes a believer, they are fundamentally changed. We are sinful and we're still sinners, but we're saved by grace and we are being changed. And God makes us into new people. And so I want you to ask yourself, and, and, I, and I've been asking myself this week too, how has the gospel changed me? If I were to put my faith on trial before a judge, would there be enough evidence to convict me that that faith is genuine? How have you been changed by the gospel? How has your desires been changed since you made a profession of faith? Do you love the church? Because it's the bride of Christ. We have to love the bride of Christ if we love the bridegroom. Do you love the church? Do you love God's people? Do you love to be here? Do you love worship? Or is it just standing and singing empty words that have no, no flame in your heart? Do you love to see people come to faith? Is it a joyful thing when someone said, I believe in Jesus? Do you, do you love God's word, his word to us? And I'm not saying, do you read it every day and check it off? Do you love it? Do you want it? Do you want it like a baby loves milk? What do, you, do you want it? Do you love it? Has God changed your heart? Do you love gospel-centered preaching? I know I'm long at times, but do you... Is there an inkling in your heart that says, even though he's going long, it's truth and it's good and I love it? Do you rejoice at righteousness? When sin enters into your life, do you recognize it? Do you repent and turn from it and say, I don't want this? Before I was a believer, I wanted it. Believe me, I wanted it. And you did too. Afterwards, yeah, my sinful nature says, oh, that looks good. But the redeemed part of me says, I don't want that. I don't want to dishonor God through lust or anger or whatever. I don't want that. Is that true of you? Has your heart been changed to love that which is right by the gospel? Or when you sin, do you simply feel bad about it because you've been caught? Or because it hurts 
you in some way, shape, or form. Rather than it offends a holy God, you love him. And you don't want to hurt your father. How has the gospel changed you? If there is no fruit, then you need to examine your fruit. Thirdly, and we're going to wrap up. Third, be a good gardener. And uh, this, again, is complicated, but I think it's necessary. We need to be good gardeners in the life, not only our life, not only our tree, if you will, but the trees of those brothers and sisters, uh, both real and professing, who are in our garden, if you will. We need to be good gardeners. And so what a gardener does when they look at a plant and they don't see that it's producing fruit they don't just leave it alone. <laughs> they tend to it. They love and they nurture and they examine and they prod and, and, and they do what they can because they love that they love that plant. And so what I don't think this means, and don't hear me wrong, what I don't think this means is we look at a person and say, you make a profession of faith, I've seen it, but I, you know, I, I don't see any fruit from what I can tell. I don't see a change in life. So I can say with certainty, you are not a believer. I don't think we can go there. Only God knows the heart. But what I think we can and should do is this. We can look at a person, a sister, a sibling, a son, a daughter, a brother and sister in Christ, and we can look, and from our vantage point, this is what James is talking about, what we can see among one another, and we can say, I see that you believe rightly. You profess faith in the gospel, but from all of these years that I've been with you and loved you, I'm having trouble seeing your heart change. I'm having trouble seeing uh, that you love the gospel. And, and so you, with tenderness and with love, you ask some hard questions. And you say, I'm going to care enough about you to show you the truth that James is articulating. Because I love you and I want this to be sure. And so when you do that, if they're a believer, genuine believer, hopefully what they will do is say... I appreciate that you love me enough to show me this, that my faith has been stagnant and it needs to be revived and it becomes revived. Or if that person thinks that they are a believer and they are not a believer and your conversation with them helps them see, I thought faith was just up here and not here and out there. Thank you for loving me. I need to be real and genuine in my faith. And so maybe there are some of you and you are a believer, and you don't doubt your salvation, you shouldn't. You're a believer, you know, you understand the gospel correctly, you see in your own life fruit of change, and people around you affirm that, and that's good. But maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking about someone, and God has put someone in your heart and on your mind, and throughout the sermon, a nephew, a daughter, a son-in-law, a parent, a best friend, a niece or a nephew has been on your mind. And maybe God is talking to you to talk to them about these kind of things. This is, I'm going to wrap it up. We're going to pray. The worship team is going to come. And, uh, and then we're going to sing. And I invite you to use these few moments, these few precious moments, to ask difficult questions of yourself. To examine the root of your faith and say, have I really trusted in Jesus Christ by faith alone? And has that then produced a life change in my heart? Ask those tough questions. John Calvin